0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's show, we welcome Chris Kuyper, Director of Research at Fidelity Digital Assets based out of Boston. Chris joins host Colin Randall, Director of Research at Fidelity Investments Canada to discuss all things digital assets. One of the most anticipated and significant events in digital assets relatively short history occurred in the early hours of September 15th, Dubbed The Merge, the event marks the Ethereum blockchain's transition move from a proof of work consensus mechanism to a proof of stake mechanism. Chris unpacks what this means, including how the merge represents significant change in Ethereum's technical structure, its economics and environmental footprint, which some say will reduce the blockchain's energy consumption by more than 99%. Also, Chris and Colin discuss the differences between the Ethereum and Bitcoin networks, also what's driving the price drops in Bitcoin and Ethereum this year, and how cryptocurrencies could fit into a portfolio. Today's podcast was recorded on September 21st, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects. Chris, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Let's start by perhaps taking a step back and talk about what exactly Ethereum is. It's been described by some observers as an early stage world computer. What do people mean by that?
2: Yeah, so I'll take it a step back even more, just briefly review Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin network, when we talk about it, is really just a bunch of computers all running the same code. And so they're connected together. They make up the Bitcoin network the Ethereum network is the same. It takes some of the same ideas and breakthroughs that the Bitcoin network did uh, with the discovery or or creation by Satoshi Nakamoto. It takes some of the same code and all of the computers running the Ethereum code make up the Ethereum network. Okay, So that's all it is, distributed, decentralized computers all running the same code. So the Ethereum network, to be clear, is completely different than the Bitcoin network. It's separate. Okay, there's there's not there's not the same you know thing between them. They're they're different computers running different code. The main difference though is that uh, the, the Ethereum network uh, takes the Bitcoin code and it added a few tweaks to it. So it made it more programmable, more flexible, and it really had in mind uh, this vision of a platform, or as you say, a world supercomputer. So the idea with the Ethereum network is that all these computers running this code make up one kind of giant computer, one platform that anyone can build applications on top of. So if you've heard of smart contracts, this is how they do that. They, they code up these little pieces of, of code called smart contracts. Those run on the Ethereum network. And so to give you, you know, kind of a basic example, if, if you have a text messaging app on your phone or an email or a banking app, You don't know exactly how it works, but I think we all know somewhere that app runs on a central server somewhere, either Bank of America server or your cell phone provider server for your text messaging. And if that server goes down or that company closes down, your app isn't going to work, right? With the Ethereum network, if I program an application on top of the Ethereum network, because no one person controls that network, It's a decentralized application. So that text messaging app doesn't have a central server. It doesn't have a single point of failure. And so that's the the key difference here and why people call this a a world computing platform, uh, if you will.
1: That's excellent. So you, you mentioned smart contracts and that sounds to be one of the key differentiators between the Bitcoin blockchain and the Ethereum blockchain. You mentioned there are applications that can be built with these smart contracts. What are the different kinds of applications that we're seeing today being built on the Ethereum network?
2: Yeah, so because it's it's kind of a generic or multi-purpose platform, people have found some pretty ingenious ways to build on top of it. So the biggest use case today is decentralized finance or DeFi, if you've heard of this. So if you think of traditional finance things like saving, investing, borrowing, and lending, those are typically done through a bank or some kind of central intermediary. With the Ethereum network, you can build these DeFi, decentralized applications uh, for finance on top of it, and you can replicate these same things without a central intermediary. So you and I can borrow or, or lend to people on the network without having a, a central bank in control. We can trade without going through a centralized stock exchange. They have entire decentralized exchanges built on top of this. Uh, so that's one of the bigger categories. There's other categories that you may have heard of, like stable coins. There's a whole category of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, where people are trading things like art and music and different rights on top of it, uh, and so that's where you see kind of this this blossoming of of innovation on top of it.
1: So so Ethereum sounds like it's it's programmable. It, it can be it can be many different things using these smart contracts, whereas Bitcoin is really it seems focused on a more sort of I guess narrow range of use cases. Is is that a fair assessment?
2: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up and, and the way you frame that, because that's exactly how uh, I and, and we like to look at it at Fidelity Digital Assets. People hear, oh, Ethereum took Bitcoin's code and, and evolved it or added functionality or made it more programmable. Therefore, it's better. And I say to people, "It's it's kind of like if I asked you, what's a better vehicle, a four-door hybrid sedan or a four-wheel drive diesel truck? Well, the answer is it depends, right? Depends what you need it for, what you're trying to do. If you're trying to get to work, and want to save gas and you can drive on nice highways, the sedan is probably the way to go. If you live out in the middle of Alaska, that four-wheel drive diesel truck literally might mean life or death for you to get out of there or be able to get food or water, right? And so I think it's the same thing with, with Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's not either or, it's not one's better or more advanced. Uh, They're clearly built for different use cases. And, and some of the founders of Ethereum clearly laid this out. They want to have a platform. They want to have fun. You know, this flexibility. Ethereum has changed its code, it's adapted. Bitcoin, on the other hand, was clearly built as a monetary network. It's the first time we've had uh, a completely open source, permissionless, censorship-resistant monetary global network. We've never had that before in in the history of humanity. And on top of it, you have the Bitcoin token, uh, which is this potential emerging form of money that's the first non-state, non-sovereign form of money, also something we've never had. So if you want a monetary network, uh you want like you say a narrow use case that focuses just on things like security, decentralization. You actually want the code to be harder to change, more ossified, more resistant to to the latest whims of what people might want or need. But on the other hand, Ethereum has all these different use cases and and, and abilities, but it makes some inherent trade-offs. And so people just need to be aware of that and, and need to know that uh there are engineering trade-offs made between the two. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a free lunch.
1: Right. So, so the news about Ethereum merging just uh, just last week, a you know, continuation of the evolution of the code. I think some, some pundits are looking at and saying, you know, this, this is a good thing. And, and, you know, is it leaving Bitcoin behind? But I think what you're saying is the very sort of stability of the Bitcoin code of its structure is, is a feature, not, not a bug.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly the way to think about it.
1: Right. So so maybe we could before we move to the to the merge, wanted to talk a little bit about consensus mechanisms, because this is really at the heart of what happened in Ethereum's merge just recently. This being the Ethereum network moved from a proof-of-work consensus mechanism to a proof-of-stake mechanism. Bitcoin remains on a proof-of-work mechanism. Could you talk a bit a little bit about the differences between these consensus mechanisms and what are the trade-offs involved?
2: Yeah, so I'll start with what a consensus mechanism is. So as I alluded to before, these networks, both Bitcoin and Ethereum, are just a bunch of computers all running the same code, and they're decentralized. Uh, No one person, entity, government, institution, corporation controls them, right? And so if you have a bunch of computers all running the same code, and they're all keeping track of some kind of ledger, a shared ledger, the question is obviously, well, how do you know which one is correct? How do you come to an agreement? on what the source of truth is. How do you come to a consensus? So obviously you need a consensus mechanism. And so Bitcoin was the first one to use proof of work. Satoshi Nakamoto did not invent proof of work. Proof of work existed before. Uh, But Satoshi was the first one to bring that piece into Bitcoin to kind of pull this all together and really make it work and align all the incentives. And so without getting too technical, if I can kind of you know, come at it from a, a, a not quite technically correct way, but just to illustrate the point, if you want a consensus mechanism between a group, if you want a group to decide, voting is usually the way you do it, right? You all get together and you vote on what is uh, the agreed upon rules or the or the state of your, your ledger. So of course you might be thinking, well, one vote per person, right? But of course that doesn't work because you have different people running computers. You don't know uh, if one person is behind it or if one person controls a hundred computers you'd have to introduce a central intermediary, like we do with our political voting systems to make sure there's only one vote per person. Uh, So that isn't gonna work. Satoshi, uh, in his actual, or they, her, or whoever Satoshi is, we don't know, Uh, but in the paper, Satoshi outlines, well, you could have one IP address uh, per vote, but then says, well, this wouldn't work either. People could spin up a bunch of computers, launch a bunch of IP addresses. Uh, So the key, The key element here is to make it one vote per unit of computing power. And so that's what proof of work is. It's expending computing power, making a computer do uh, calculations and burn electricity as a a type of voting mechanism. And so if people have a financial stake, if there's a cost to that vote, it aligns their incentives to act truthfully. And, And for this service, for helping to secure the network and making sure it's accurate, they're rewarded with new Bitcoin. Okay, so that's, that's proof of work. Ethereum started with proof of work too. And, and the, the miners, they're called the people who expend electricity and computing power, uh, they got new Ethereum. Okay, so now they're gonna move to a different consensus mechanism. Proof of work is, is one way to achieve consensus. The one Ethereum has recently moved to is called proof of stake or POS. So in this, instead of expending electricity to help secure the network, you lock up your funds. You're, you're kind of locking them up like like a bond or collateral, right? And the people who lock up their funds get to help validate the true transactions. So again, the, the object is to try to align those economic incentives. And if they act dishonestly, they can get their funds splashed or a, a fee taken off of them. So obviously, the, the big change here is you don't need to burn electricity, you just need to lock up funds. And so this is the big deal with with Ethereum and why uh, from day one they wanted to move to proof of stake. They thought they would do it about a year after Ethereum launched in 2015. Seven years later, we're finally there. The problem right. turned out to be a lot harder than they thought. Uh, mm-hmm. But as you stated, September 15, it actually happened.
1: Well, that's great. So, so maybe we could talk a little bit more about the rationale or moving toward this new consensus mechanism and proof of stake. What are some of the purported benefits? You touched on environmental, but um, I think there are other benefits that are being claimed for this move, including yield, impacts to issuance of Ether, as well as potential security benefits.
2: Yeah, so the the big one was the, the energy usage, as you said. So Ethereum's network has gone has dropped its energy consumption or electricity consumption by uh, about 99% or, or even more, right? It, you basically don't need it anymore. You just need a minimum amount of energy to run these, these staking validators and, and the computers that run the code. The second big thing that's changing is uh, the issuance schedule. Miners used to get newly minted ether. Uh, there's still gonna be some newly minted ether, but it's about 90% less than what was what was going on before the merge. So your issuance goes down uh, by 90%. And then there was a change to the Ethereum code before the merge, where every time a transaction is done on the Ethereum network, some of the transaction fee is burned, meaning nobody gets it. It ceased to exist. So there is a potential now for the supply of Ethereum to actually be deflationary. The supply could actually go down. And so depending on your viewpoint of whether this could be a good thing in terms of, of storing value or or being a a more valuable asset that isn't being inflated as much uh, is up to you. Uh, And then the third point, as you mentioned, was uh, you can now get yield. So because these people lock up their ether, their tokens, their money, their capital to help secure the network, why would they do this? Why are they incentivized to do it? Well, they get some of these newly minted ether as well as some of the the transaction fee money. And so they're getting a a yield from that. Uh, Before the merge, uh, they were getting about 4% and now it's a little bit higher. So uh, there's the incentive there as well. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the risks
1: that are potentially apparent as a result of this merge.
2: Yeah. So pre-merge, you know, there was a lot of skepticism. A, would it actually happen? They were doing different tests and stages. They found some bugs earlier so that everyone was kind of holding their breath when it happened. Of, is this going to work? Is it you know, people uh, likened it to the equivalent of changing out an airplane's engine while in mid-flight, right? <laughs> uh, very risky, very technical. There's a lot of value and money on the line, but they, they did it, and it seemingly has gone off without a hitch. So my hats are off to them, all the engineers, because I realized this was a, a very technical problem. That's not to say, though, that there could be more bugs in the future that haven't been discovered. There is a, a widespread acceptance that proof-of-stake is more complicated. Uh, even the Ethereum, their own website, ethereum.org, uh, notes this, and they also note that uh, proof of stake is not as battle tested as proof of work. You know, proof of work has been running on Bitcoin since Bitcoin started in 2009, so going on 13 years. Proof of stake hasn't been done on this scale yet. So we'll see, obviously, if, 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 if it all goes according to plan. And then the other risks that people mention are risks of centralization. So again, if you've got a large entities locking up their capital and then they're also getting a yield on it, uh, they'll continue to accrue value. And now these entities are the ones that are, are in control. So rather than the miners, uh, you've got these these stakers that have the potential to control the network. And so there's a lot of questions of what level of of centralization will happen or where that equilibrium will kind of come out to. But I think that's one of the other risks to be aware of as well. And then a, a third one is just kind of we've never gone to such a massive scale of of proof of stake where. Everything is now kind of virtual. And, and Vitalik even mentioned this himself. Like we, we are in a virtual world uh, where we can kind of make our own physics. The advocates for Bitcoin say proof of work is the feature, not the bug. That you're, The fact that you have something so virtual, so ephemeral like Bitcoin, and you tie it back to the physical world, uh, the laws of physics can't be faked. To them, that's the feature, right? That's what anchors it and what gives them kind of uh, that assurance that there's something of real value there. And so, uh, again, some of these things, we'll, we'll just have to wait to see how they play out and whether they become uh, greater risks or, or not over time.
1: I just mentioned Vitalik, the gentleman you named, Vitalik Buterin is one of the co-founders of Ethereum and I guess one of the key designers of the, the blockchain and its development since then. Could I also ask about a staking? There, I guess there are also some liquidity concerns that those individuals, uh, organizations that are staking, right now with Ethereum aren't able to pull their, their ether out at this time and, and potentially for some time to come.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you want to stake Ether yourself personally without using another service or company or DAO, a decentralized organization, uh, it's it's a lot of work and a lot of money. It's it's very complex. You need to run some pretty high powered computers and you need to stake 32 ETH. So at today's prices, uh you know, you're talking 50, 40, 50000 dollars whatever the the price is. So it's not cheap, it's not easy, and furthermore, if you do choose to stake, you will get the reward. But if you want to unstake and get your ether back, uh, you are not allowed to do that at this time it's It's currently locked up, and the only time people will be able to, to unstake will be they estimate six to twelve months down the road when they implement another upgrade to the network so again, depending on your time frame and also kind of the probability of whether that six to twelve months will turn into Years, kind of like the merge itself happened, uh, has yet to be seen. But certainly something to be aware of. Yep.
1: Right. And then just just to be clear, you don't have to stake. You can hold Ethereum and not stake. By not doing so, of course, you're not going to be earning the staking rewards, the yield that comes with with doing so. But important considerations for investors.
2: You'd still be exposed to the price appreciation or or decline, but you at least have the liquidity. Yep.
1: All right. Well, so, so maybe could we talk about what the merge isn't? You know, a lot of talk about whether this will involve a reduction in gas fees, a re- reduction in cost in using the network, whether it's going to speed up the Ethereum network, which some, you know, some observers have said is, is quite slow and, and hard to imagine a whole world using this blockchain today.
2: Yeah. So there's there's a, a number of misconceptions like you were talking about there. The number one is is it's going to speed it up. There's a tiny, tiny grain of truth there. There's kind of this technical thing where the blocks uh, are gonna come, they're they're coming more regularly. So there's like a marginal speed improvement there, whereas before it was more of a probabilistic thing. But most people should just ignore that, that the the speed and throughput of the network has not changed. That was not the point of the merge, it never really was. The other grain of truth though, is that this upgrade had to happen first and they've got plans down the road to speed it up, make it more scalable. There's something called sharding that they plan to do down the road. But again, this is you know years later. But that goes hand in hand with, with the gas fees then because if the network gets congested, the transaction or gas fees go up, uh, that's not gonna change. You, you still might see very high gas uh, fees if the network becomes congested again. Uh, so again, that's something that's not changing, as you said. You
1: know- I don't know if this is an instance here where, you know, people were buying on the quote unquote rumor in the lead up to the merge and sell on the news. But we have seen pretty significant price declines for both Ether and Bitcoin recently. Could you talk about what's what you think is driving the, that movement?
2: Yeah, so we'll start with Ethereum specifically. I think you're right. It was a classic buy the rumor, sell the news, right? It was the Ethereum was outperforming Bitcoin all the way back to, you know, July really, or, or earlier as this anticipation heated up, as the tests were going well, as they got some more solidity around the date and when it would actually happen. So people started, you know, running up uh, Ethereum into that. But then when it actually happened, it seems like I guess most people thought it would happen and they, they sold off on that. So if you look at a chart of, of Bitcoin versus Ethereum, it's kind of hit that resistance level. If you're looking at Ethereum as a percentage of Bitcoin's market cap, it just hasn't been able to break through the, the, the past few months where it's been hitting up there. Now, more broadly, you're right. The whole industry is down, right? Bitcoin's down about 70% from its last all-time highs last November. And it's really been the macro environment that's driving this. Uh, We we kind of feel like a broken record talking about it every week or every month, but people continue to view view digital assets like a risk asset, kind of like what we say, a a growth stock on steroids, right? Very high beta, 0.7, 0.8 beta to the S&P 500 for Bitcoin, come down just a little bit. That is... That is the exception, though, not the norm. If you look at the whole history of Bitcoin's correlation, it fluctuates between a 0.2 and minus two. So really very uncorrelated. And that was one of the big uh, you know, value propositions of Bitcoin in a portfolio, in the, is that it is uncorrelated to everything, stocks, bonds, gold, commodities, real estate. Lately, that hasn't been the case. So obviously, the, the big question is, is this the new normal going forward? Is it always going to trade like a gross stock on steroids, a risk asset, or is that going to decouple? Of course, you know, we can't say, time will tell, but I think the, the characteristics of Bitcoin specifically, and at least in my opinion, would lead to more of a, a decoupling against once people realize how it, different it is from a growth stock or some of these other asset classes. But again, all eyes on on macro. We've got the Fed again today, so I expect it to behave accordingly.
1: <laughs> we'll be watching, watching with uh, keen eyes. I'm sure. Well, maybe could we talk a little bit, sort of longer term? This is, you know, sort of the shorter term price action. Some comments we see um, in the digital assets, you know, communities, and and perhaps beyond. Around is this perhaps the start of a flippening of Ethereum overtaking Bitcoin? We touched on this early in the webcast. But what are your thoughts there?
2: Yeah. So the Ethereum community has been talking about this for a long time. Uh, obviously. Bitcoin's dominance started at 100%. It was the only one out there, the only game in town. It's gone down to about as low as 40%, 45% and gone back up to about 60%. If you're looking at the long-term chart, though, Bitcoin's dominance going down is not so much a feature of it declining in price as just all of these other things coming into the marketplace. So the whole pie has gotten bigger, right? It's not that Bitcoin's price has gotten smaller, It's just the pie has gotten bigger, so its relative size to everything else has gotten smaller. Now, whether Ethereum is going to eventually overtake Bitcoin uh, obviously depends on a lot of factors. I think if you have the view of kind of like Bitcoin as a digital gold, gold is a ten to fifteen trillion dollar asset class. Other markets like stocks and bonds are obviously multiple times of that. But if Bitcoin finds more use cases than just purely a digital gold, uh, then I think it's going to be a, a much bigger proportion of that of that pie. But again, you know, we'll we'll see over the coming years for sure.
1: Well, so so this is obviously a a big momentous development for the Ethereum blockchain, and I think it's safe to argue for sort of the crypto space more broadly. The merge happening just recently. What's next for Ethereum? What 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 comes next on the Ethereum roadmap?
2: Yeah, so I, I think we hit on kind of the main ones already. So there's first that six to 12 months from now upgrade that will allow stakers to unstake and, and access their locked up or staked ether. That's called the, the Shanghai update, if people if want to be on the lookout for that one. Uh, and then beyond that, they're going to start focusing on the scalability issues. So sharding is one area where you've, where you've got uh, little shards of a chain and then they all roll up Vitalik is on record saying in one article, after the merge, uh, in his estimation, Ethereum will be 55% done. <laughs> so it kind of gives you uh, a window into his mind of, of how far we are and how far he thinks it will still go.
1: Right, right. Um, I have another question here. Wondered if we could get your thoughts, Chris, on the role of digital assets. In a portfolio today, you see this as a diversification opportunity, as a growth opportunity. What are your What are your thoughts on on the role of of crypto in a portfolio?
2: Yeah, so it's it's hard to put Bitcoin into a specific traditional category of you know stock, bond, commodity, real estate, that sort of thing, uh, because it has kind of characteristics of all these things, but isn't quite one of these things. There's a famous article that I encourage everyone to read that really opened my mind uh, when I discovered Bitcoin called, uh, What does Bitcoin and the platypus have in common? By Spencer Bogart. And I'll get to the punchline, which is uh, they're both category creators. When the platypus was discovered, uh, people couldn't couldn't think or, or they argued about what kind of category, how to scientifically classify this animal. And they obviously came down to the conclusion is we need to make a whole new category. And so it'll be interesting to see if if the same thing happens with Bitcoin, where does it come into one of our traditional buckets or whether it truly is an, an a, a new asset class. But again, I think it helps to differentiate between, say, Bitcoin, uh, the network and Bitcoin, the asset to kind of think about the different investment theses. You've got, once again, a, the world's first open permissionless global payment network that's ever been created. As that grows, as things get, get built on top of it, uh, value will accrue to the tokens. And then the tokens themselves, Bitcoin, the, the native token is the world's first potential emerging non-sovereign, non-bank currency. And so uh, how do you look at that in your portfolio in terms of, of what central banks are doing uh, with you know, expanding balance sheets, uh, more fiscal spending, inflation on the rise, uh, that sort of thing. So again, Bitcoin's gone through different narratives, digital assets have gone through some of these different narratives. So they're still trying to find kind of where it fits, but with each wave of adoption, each wave of of a different investor uh, looking at the space, it becomes kind of uh, more clear where, where where they're putting this. And again, going back to the correlation thing, if you think it's not correlated, that's gonna be the norm, it's gonna revert back to that mean. You've got potentially an asymmetric asset, a lot of upside, a limited downside, uh, that's uncorrelated to other things. So, you know, is the question something like that should have 0% in your portfolio or, you know, maybe even just a, a small amount?
1: Right, right. That's excellent. Last question for you, just mindful of time. I want to get your thoughts on, you know, the outlook for the space, you know, in, in light of continued volatility that we're seeing in markets, digital markets and traditional markets, what is it that you're watching for on the horizon? And what should investors be thinking about in terms of opportunities in digital assets?
2: Yeah, so if, if you took out all the price action and you looked at all the other data points and all the other news, I think you'd be surprised to find that Bitcoin is in such a, a bear market as well as all the other digital assets. Because if you look at fundamentals that we track and watch, things like number of addresses, and these are all on-chain verifiable things, right? Number of addresses, the balance in, is in those addresses. The hash rate, that's a measure of the computing power for those proof-of-work consensus mechanisms. Hash rates at all-time high. The network has never been more secure. People are firing up these machines, despite the price being down so low. So if you look at some of those fundamentals, everything says there's more adoption happening. And then you combine that with almost every day I see a new news piece of another institution announcing digital asset capabilities, building out some other service or infrastructure. To me, that tells me, you know, this isn't going away, despite the bear market we're in, but we've been in these bear markets before. This is the the fourth one of mm-hmm. 70, 80, 85% down. And so the the technology is real. i am fully convinced this is an absolute breakthrough in technology in terms of computer science, in terms of economics, and it's gonna have profound implications. So now where that value settles out and accrues to, of course, is the next big question. But the adoption continues and people people keep building. And so uh, that's what I'm looking at the long term, continue to look at those those fundamentals to make sure my investment thesis hasn't changed. And then in the short term, it's going to be macro, right? It's it's when or if uh, central banks start to pivot and uh, go back into easing mode for for whatever reason, uh, I think you're going to see the, the shift or, or flip happening with digital assets as well.
1: Chris, it's great to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights on this evolving area of the markets. We really appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks again for joining us on Fidelity Connects.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.